Keith here. When I started making the first episode of, I had no experience doing podcast interviews, especially the technical side of things. It was a lot of confusing steps, setting up double enders or making do with low quality recordings on whatever app I could figure out. But it got a whole lot easier when I started using Zencaster. Made for podcasts with Zencaster, it's so easy to do everything. You and your guests log in with a browser and record studio quality sound and up to 4K video, even with an unstable connection. And it's an all-in-one deal. You don't need a lot of different tools or services. With Zencaster, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute it to Spotify, Apple, and other major platforms. If you've ever thought about making your own podcast, go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TFEO and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experience I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story on Zencaster. Hey, it's Keith. If you're a lover of audio drama like I am, you need to know about the Apollo app. Apollo is designed around audio drama, so finding your next story is easy. You can always listen through Apollo for free, but there's also the Apollo Plus subscription. With it, you get ad-free listening, exclusives, and other bonus content for over 40 shows. And 70% of the revenue on Apollo Plus goes to those creators. Join Apollo Plus through the Apollo Podcasts app or apollopods.com. And welcome to the first episode of a podcast about audio drama and the creative process. I'm W. Keith Timms, audio drama producer and podcaster. In this show, I listen to the first episode of an audio drama, then have a discussion with the creators about their show, their methods, struggles, and successes. Today, we're discussing the first episode of The Very Worst Thing That Could Possibly Happen. Worst thing that could possibly happen. Created by Alex Kemp, The Very Worst Thing That Could Possibly Happen is the latest production from Wolf at the Door Studios. Kemp is also the creator of The Imperfection and Modes of Thought in Anterran Literature, both of which were official selections at the Tribeca Film Festival, while The Very Worst Thing That Could Possibly Happen won this year's Best Audio Fiction at that festival. The show is a kind of magical realism story about two people separated by geography and time who discover they can write letters to each other even though they are 30 years apart. The two, Raul and Sarah, are adrift in their own lives, yearning for purpose and connection. They have never met, yet feel a strange need to correspond with the help of a talking snake, a time-traveling seductress, and a magical post office. Additionally, Sex becomes a kind of transformative magic for the pair, and the show has explicit sexual scenes, which we'll discuss. Listener discretion is advised. I spoke to Alex remotely from his home in California. Tell us a little bit about yourself as an artistic person, writer, and creator. 
I'm not young, so that's a lot to cover. Uh, <laughs> the short version of my background is that I went to art school. I was a really precocious kid. I really thought I was going to be a painter, like forever. So always I was like, I'm going to be a painter. And uh, everyone's like, yeah, great. <laughs> I stuck with that all the way through attending Rhode Island School of Design for Painting, at which point I joined a band. By the time that I graduated from school, uh, the band was doing pretty well. This was like 90s indie rock heyday. And then I discovered studio work, and I, I wound up producing a lot of bands, working as an assistant in some big New York recording studios, and just really loving microphones and, and sound and, and how that works. And I, I sort of always thought of the recording studio as a place where you go to capture ghosts, you know, to capture this like mm. really elusive magic. From there, I wound up getting signed and dropped and signed and dropped and kind of screwed by every kind of record label there is. Eventually started writing music for television commercials to make a living. Because I had this background in art history, somebody figured out that I was good at talking to clients I became a creative director for advertising, for com composing and sound design. And I did that for about 10 years and uh, until my soul had shriveled up to like a <laughs> little piece of lint you find under your couch. I remember turning to my wife, Winnie, and saying, you know, what I really want to do is audio drama, but I just, I don't know anything about story. Now, my wife, Winnie Kemp, who's an EP on the show and runs Wolf at the Door Studios with me, her whole background is story, right? She's like, that's literally what I do uh, because she's been a development executive and producer in film and TV for 15 years. So we kind of put those two skills together and started doing audio drama. And that's really just exploded for us. So you've got a little bit of visual art, but you got a lot of music. What did attract you to audio drama? I mean, how did you even think of that as a thing you wanted to do? I am... I guess creatively a bit of a polymath. Like I had always written alongside the other stuff that I was doing, you know, just in the most precocious way possible, bad poetry and short <laughs> stories and blah, 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 blah. What was great about music is that it has this instantaneous groove. Even if you say something stupid, no one's going to notice if they're dancing. And then in writing, you really can't say anything stupid or else it's going to take you out of the, the story. I think I'd sort of come to a place where I felt like I was hiding behind the power of music a little bit. And I was safe there. When we first talked about doing audio drama, Winnie reached out to a friend of hers who was working at Gunpowder and Sky, which does Dust, which is a science mm -hmm. fiction anthology. And we did a couple of episodes of that. I just realized that it, it was like, this is amazing. There's so many more emotions that you can bring out in this format than I could in music. But I felt like with what I wanted to do, that it was more akin to some of the more layered kind of genre mishmash storytelling that was going on in TV at the time. I'm thinking about things like Fleabag, Killing Eve, and the OA, and, and just stuff that was, was not so siloed and sort of prepackaged for the audience, but instead sort of treated the audience as being pretty smart. Have you always been a fan of genre fiction? Yes and no. I was as moved by Star Wars as a kid as I was by One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm -hmm. Right. I still think David Lynch's Dune is awesome, if flawed, at the same time as like what I read is Haruki Murakami. 
I would say I love magical realism. If there's a genre that I consider mine, it's it's magical realism more than sci-fi or horror. But I love putting those elements in the context of Marquez and Murakami. Yeah. Well, the very worst thing that could possibly happen is, I would say, a kind of magical realism story. Oh, for sure. What is the genesis for the very worst thing that could possibly happen? Where did this story come from for you? When I was saying that I look to audio as a place where there's a new kind of storytelling that I'm not seeing out there, this is my answer to that. It is not the kind of idea that you can walk into a room and pitch. It's way too personal. It's way too blurry. And it follows an emotional logic that makes absolute sense to my heart and my guts, but that would be very hard to explain to a writing room and be like, okay, go write these episodes. An idea like this is something that I grow in my head over a matter of months, maybe years. I have lots of these ideas, but it's the one that won't go away that then I work on. Right. You know, as soon as I sort of came up with this idea of, okay, there's two characters that don't feel like they fit in their own time and they can write letters to each other through time. Then I said, okay, now there's a story here. I don't outline when I'm writing my own stuff. I just sit down in front of the machine and type. It's much more creative for me that way and and much more unexpected things happen. Do you know the beginning, middle, and end beats before you start writing? Or No, I have no idea where I'm going. I, mm. I didn't know how I was going to resolve the story until I was in episode seven. You know, again, I just sort of gave myself permission to be like, well, you'll think of something. That is not a process that would work for many people. I'm not necessarily sure. recommending it. And I have a lot of people who can then read my work and help me like trim it down into something that makes sense. Right. There's the rewriting process and all that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 But for some initial things, like the idea of there being this giant vacuum cleaner that sucks off a pound of flesh from Raul at the end of the first episode. Yeah. Like, I just have to be in the moment. And again, it's sort of a musical thing. It's just a groove like, oh, I need I need to go to a B section here. This needs to get big. And so you just write and then that. Yeah comes out. And that that stuff to me is gold. If I tried to think about that, I don't know that I would come up with that. Yeah. I mean, when, in writing, they talk about people who are plotters or pantsers, right? They either plot everything out ahead of time before they write, or they just write by the seat of their pants. Um, <laughs> so I'm a pantser. And I am too, to a certain extent, I think. I guess my process is I get the major beats in my head, and then I try to connect the dots and the connective tissue and the bones come out as I go. And then sometimes I'll surprise myself and just go with it, you know? Yeah. I think there are times when, like, if I'm writing, I get in the zone, then I'm not even writing anymore. It's more like I'm watching the characters in my head and listening to them. And I'm just well, writing down what they do and say, you know. And this is this is what Franz Klein was about, right? So going back to painting and abstract expressionism, his whole idea was the immediate response to form and the idea that you would look and paint so intuitively and so quickly that you would remove the ego from the product. Right. Now, asking writers to remove their ego is like, what are you even <laughs> talking about? Oh, my God. But I'm convinced that my ego is worthless in this equation. You know what I yeah. mean? What, what really matters is my gut and the feeling that, that goes with a certain kind of rightness. I can't build like building something out of Legos. I, I have to discover it. 
both Raul and Sarah, they are in positions where things are not expected. Like Sarah, her fiance, cheats on her. And so suddenly she's not sure what she wants to do with her life. And Raul is drifting, you know, and then he he ends up getting seduced unexpectedly. I think both of these characters are sort of in this position where they start off unsettled. That unsettling is what drives the character's conflict, internal conflict. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's very purposefully echoed in the times that they live in. Sarah being in Paris in 1959, when de Gaulle had just been elected for the first time, and there is the middle of the war for Algerian independence going on, which is a very politically charged time in Paris. And then we have Hong Kong in 1997, which is where Raoul is living. Interestingly, too, Raoul's from Colombia. So he grew up in a very like conflicted, politically charged time in Colombia. Now he's in Hong Kong, and now they're about to give Hong Kong back to mainland China. That's very purposefully there to not just echo, but it feels of a piece with the way that we're living right now with a certain amount of political uncertainty around us. And so it felt right to start the characters on very uncertain tectonics. Is there a reason you wanted to tell this particular story at this time? There are a lot of things about the very worst thing that could possibly happen that I feel like are current. You know, going back to some of that political uncertainty, both of the characters have different ways of looking at themselves and trying to be okay with the fact that they don't fit in, in the lives that they're trying to build for themselves. You know, it's, they're both in kind of awkward circumstances where it's fairly bourgeois, they're doing fine, but at the same time, it's completely the wrong place for them. And they know it, and yet they keep building it. I think that a lot of that's influenced by what we all saw during the pandemic, and then the inflation after the pandemic, and just how there's just this downward pressure from capitalism to keep people right on the edge of poverty, and just squeeze as much out of them as possible. But one car accident, one health scare, and you're flung into poverty. And, right. and so this idea that the majority of our country is right on the edge of losing their lives, their, their livelihoods, their, the, the dream, right, is something that I've definitely, I feel like this piece is reacting to that. That, to me, is the yeah. very worst thing that could possibly happen. Good evening. It's March 15, 1997, and this is the BBC World Service. Protests in Hong Kong have been intensifying as the return of the island to mainland China, scheduled for next year, looms large. Dear Sara, I'm not much of a letter writer, so please forgive me if this is clumsy. Mostly I'm curious to see if this works at all, if this letter can actually find you as far away as you are. My name is Raúl Pablo Artiega. I live in Hong Kong, but I was born in Colombia, so I'm far away too, I guess. I'm a consultant for Chinese companies who export goods to the West. Why the fuck did she get up? Nothing, I'm just talking to myself. Your book. It means a lot to me. Perhaps it's weird to say that about a book that's... Well, it's not obscene, not at all, but it's very erotico. After I read it, I felt like I knew you. I mean, so personal, who wouldn't? But also, it made me 
miss something. I was suddenly aware that there was a gap in my life and nothing would ever fix it. And I didn't even try. This broken feeling, it's just there. <laughs> that sounds pretty sad. <laughs> no, I guess it is. The story is told in a framework of two characters separated by both geography and time, writing and reading letters to each other. In the first episode, we, we meet Raul, who is living in Hong Kong, and he meets a woman named Ai, who is more than she seems. She has a pet snake named Ming, and she also seduces him. And rather, she says she's seducing him in order to put him to sleep so he can dream. After they have made love three times, there's a kind of transformation that seems to happen to him. For example, the snake begins to talk to him. The snake encourages him to write to his favorite author, who is uh, Sarah Cloutier, but she lived 30 years earlier in France and now she's dead. Meanwhile, in 1959, Sarah Cloutier is the other part of this story. She has not written any works yet. She's working in an office, but she meets a woman named Claire, who is also I. After Sarah discovers that her fiancé is cheating on her, she ends up at a party with Claire slash I, who also seduces her so that she can be put to sleep so she can dream. And on top of this, there is this agency of some sort that's at work talking about Raul and Sarah in a way that suggests that they're important or part of some larger problem. Part of the solution to this problem is to get them to write to each other through a mystical post service. Now, when I seduces Raul in when he's on this business trip in Manchuria, she gives him a slip of paper with an address on it. When he gets back to Hong Kong, he goes to the address and it's like a sort of normal triple A mailboxes international place on the corner. And he goes in and there's this teenage girl named Kate working there. And here's a secret for everybody that doesn't know yet. Kate is our music supervisor. Oh, cool. What she listens to is what all the music is in the show. So when we go to 1959, we're not hearing stuff from 1959. Instead, we're hearing covers that I did of various indie rock tunes from the early 90s, because that's what Kate listens to. So she's our music supervisor for the show. That's really cool. Raul learns there's a way that these two people can write to each other through time, but there's a cost. In order to send a letter, he's got to literally pay a pound of flesh. And there's this machine that like sucks a pound off of off of him. Sarah Cloutier, 32 Rupert Rock Paris. If I had a guess, that's someone you'd like to write a letter to? Well, yeah, she's a writer. She wrote my favorite book. It's weird. I was just thinking about her today. Blah, blah, blah. I don't care. But if you bring me a letter, I'll send it for you. And if she writes back, it'll be in there. But. But what? She's dead. She's a French writer from the 60s. She died 30 years ago. According to you. Well, no. I mean, according to everyone. The world, the internet. Well, if it's on the internet, I mean, you can't fuck with that. I don't understand. It's simple. You can write her a letter. We'll deliver it. And she can write you back. But I'm guessing I didn't discuss the stamp situation. I need stamps to write a dead person? Yep. There's a cost. How much? A pound. Like a British pound? No. What? A pound. A pound of flesh. 
A pound of you? That's what it costs. Just, you know, FYI. This is a story about two people searching for connection. Over the course, both Raul and Sarah have other lovers, have other connections and other friends, but they keep writing back to each other as if they feel like they should belong together in some way. Talk to me about the relationship between these two people, where this comes from, and what kind of subtext are you trying to convey with this? I think it starts from a very kind of teenage angst oriented feeling of uh, not necessarily belonging in your circumstance, whatever that is. I think a lot of people can relate to that. Like when you're a teenager and you look around at your family and you're like, really, this is my family. This is where I live. I certainly felt that way. And then that grows into, as you get older and do some stuff, then you get, it grows into imposter syndrome where you're like, well, you know, I don't really belong here. I hope nobody figures out that like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I sort of built up a relationship with certain artistic touchstones in the stuff that I had read or listened to, whether that's Talking Heads or Sonic Youth, a lot of indie rock. There's Husker Du covers, there's Mission of Burma covers, all kinds of music in there that really saved me through my time of feeling more alienated. And a lot of books, and some of those were really out there, like William S. Burroughs or Anais Nin. To me, Sarah Cloutier is very much modeled after this idea of a sort of a Nias Nin type character. And when we sat down to do the first table read with the cast, that's what I told them. I said, this is really about a feeling that we've all had, which is I don't fit, I don't belong, and I don't think anybody's going to help. Yeah. There is a kind of wistfulness that runs through the show, a kind of quiet longing, right? That (laughs) Yes, I leaned into that pretty hard. Yeah, that both characters have about trying to figure out not only what they're going to do in their own positions, but then this magnetism that seems to draw them towards each other, even though they've never met. For Sarah, I is her first lesbian experience. This is something that sort of opens doors uh, to her in terms of her own self-identity and her own sexuality. If your mascara is running. Ah, that must look like a mess. The opposite. You always look put together. I mean, at the office, your cute business suits and perfect makeup. (laughs) But now, with your hair a little messy and your makeup streaming from tears, now you are the most beautiful woman in the world. And I can't stop thinking about kissing you. You you want to kiss me? Yes. May I? I... um... Come home with me. I can't. I I can't. Um, Can I? You are coming with me. You want wine? I don't care. Mm. I'll get some wine. Mm. Okay. Mm. What are you doing, Sarah? What's that? Nothing. Um, I'm asking myself what I'm doing. Hopefully you have no idea. I don't. Are you sleepy? No. (laughs) 
Come to bed. Talk to me about your approach and your philosophy on including eroticism as part of your storytelling here. I don't know what audio can do yet. I'm pushing. For those of you that listen to this show and find those scenes make you uncomfortable, I'm, I'm, I'm terribly sorry. I went, I went pretty far. We did hire an intimacy coordinator to help us make sure that the cast was comfortable while we were doing those scenes. As a human living in this world, when a lot of what we're talking about is a, a feeling of disconnection, the nights that I have stayed up late with a lover are the salvation. That's yeah. as good as it gets. You know, yeah. it's late at night. Nobody needs anything from you. You're with someone you're having fun with, and you've just shared this beautiful animalistic experience that calms your brain down. So, uh, of course, that should be part of a life-changing story. Like, why would it not be? I go back to the Epic of Gilgamesh and talk about Shemat and Enkidu a lot. And I do this in, in mm -hmm. modes of thought. I've done it in almost everything I've written. The Epic of Gilgamesh is the oldest known human story. In it, we start off with a bad king. The gods decide he needs a friend to balance him. So they create Enkidu. But when Enkidu is first made, he is a wild creature living in the woods with the animals. So they send the priestess, Shemat, to meet him. And she exposes her naked body to him. He comes over. He can't resist her. They make love for seven days and nights. Afterwards, he tries to go back to just being an animal, but he can't. The animals reject him because he is now a man. He's now human. So that's the oldest story that we have told by human beings. And it's about sex as transformation. Yeah. Okay, so I have an unfair question. I'm going to announce that up front. Imperfection was a selection at Tribeca. Um, mm -hmm. So was Modes of Thought and Interian Literature. This show, the very worst thing that could possibly happen, won this year at Tribeca. Congratulations, by the way. How do you write an audio drama that wins Tribeca? <laughs> I told you it was unfair. Yeah, uh, but I have the answer. It's okay. really, it's so easy. Ready? Okay. Yep. Your step number one is fuck everybody. They're all wrong. Do not listen to anybody. That's where you start from, right? Okay. Then right. you sit down in front of a machine of some sort and you write, and then you give that to people you trust and take back the first thing and say, okay, maybe they're right. That's how I do it. That's it. That's it. First, you say, everybody's wrong. Nobody knows anything. I can do this. And then you just write. And then you give it to some people and you say, okay, maybe I don't know everything. I need to listen to some other people. Do you factor in your, into your thoughts about, well, we want to include X, Y, and Z because the festivals really like X, Y, and Z? Is that part of your calculus when you start to write and produce? No, that's death. If you start being a committee judging you from that distance before you begin, I think you're at a bad, bad spot. It's because now you're relying on cleverness and intellect to get you the rest of the way there, mm -hmm. right? And everything's become a very hard yeah. puzzle. I don't think that one ought to think like that. And it comes back again and again to trusting yourself. There's real value in saying, if I find this compelling, if I find this interesting, other people will get that too. And maybe by not just following a pre-existing canon or practice, but instead by listening 
and following my own sort of internal interest and fascination, I will get somewhere genuinely new. That's interesting no matter what medium we're talking about. I've gotten this many shows into Tribeca, and I'm so grateful to those guys and and done well at the Ambies and, and done well with the public. I still haven't been able to sell a show, yeah. you know, because my ideas are weird. Engaging with that committee, that sort of external validation committee, whatever that is for you, is a choice that you should get into, but not early in the process. Not when you need to be motivated and passionate and drive yourself to complete nine episodes, 180 pages. You know, I think at that point, it should be about what you want to do and nothing else. Yeah. Since we're kind of talking about this, how do you measure success? The problem that I have, and I think probably other people have too, is that I've got a few different yardsticks that I use to measure my success. And some of them are total bullshit. You know, like society wants me to make money and have lots of followers on social media. And so sometimes I look at myself and go, well, I'm not a success on that front. Then there's the one that I sort of inherited from my family, right? My core nuclear family of like, you know, in that case, it was really also about sort of financial success and stability. No, it didn't really, didn't really measure up on that side either. You know, it didn't become a banker. It's very hard to move all those other yardsticks out of the way and really ask yourself, well, what is success? I'm 53 years old now. It's a little bit easier finally to sort of go, the things that make me happiest are not that. I'm not young and I'm still trying to remember to use the right yardstick when I gauge whether or not today's been a good day or this year's been a good year. What do you struggle with? Certainly that subject we were just talking about in terms of sort of how to value yourself, how to judge your own worth. I don't think I'm the only artist who's had some issues with like dysthymia or mild depression that Mm -hmm. make it even harder to figure out when you're doing well and when you're doing poorly. Struggles with perception, which I guess kind of makes sense if you look at my work where it's a lot about people who are perceiving things in weird ways. Outside of that, you know, the truth is I'm super lucky. You know, I have this amazing wife that I work with at the studio and we have these two lovely kids that are hilarious and full of ideas and really inspiring. And the other people that we work with here at the studio, Lou and Chica and Bo are just rad and inspire me every day. So yeah, I mean, I got nothing to complain about. Is there a lesson that you've learned about making audio drama that you might want to share with folks who maybe are trying to make their own? I had to look a long time to find my sort of North Stars for audio drama. There's a few shows I would listen to that, to me, sort of gave me a sense of what it could sound like. And um, maybe that would be helpful. Find a show that you think, ah, that sounds like something I would enjoy listening to and therefore also something I might want to make. The very worst thing that could possibly happen is out now. Is there anything else that you would like to add? I got to say, Keith, I'm really appreciative to get a chance to talk about the very worst thing. And as a project, out of the various projects that I've worked on, I would say it's the one in which I have sort of feel the most vulnerable and most exposed, mm-hmm. and it went as far out on the limb as I could. It is 
hopefully a new kind of listen for a lot of people. You know, maybe they'll like it, maybe they'll think it's weird, but uh, I definitely feel like I did what I set out to do in terms of pushing this particular medium into a new place, at least as far as I can tell. Okay, go stand on that scale. The big metal thing on the floor. Here? Yep. Stand still. What's that? Lift up your shirt! Just pull this tube over your stomach! We are sober! Ow! Yeah, this is gonna hurt! What? Nothing! The very worst thing that could possibly happen does unspool like a novel by Murakami or Anais Nin, weaving yearning, searching characters with erotic content and strange mysticism. And it's these two protagonists and their search for themselves through each other that holds your attention most, even among the sex clubs and talking snakes. You can listen to the very worst thing that could possibly happen on most major podcast platforms or see our show notes for more information. The first episode of is written and produced by W. Keith Timms. All the opinions expressed in this show belong to the people who expressed them and not necessarily to anyone else. The theme song is Mockingbird by David Mumford. This show is a production of Alien Ghost Robot Creative Media. If you want more information, want to sign up for our newsletter, or are an audio drama creator and would like to be on the show, visit our website at thefirstepisodeof.com. We're happy to be a part of the Audio Drama Lab, a Discord-based resource for audio drama development and networking. Check it out at audiodramalab.com. Keep telling stories. It's the only way we're going to get out of this mess. Until next time. I think being out here in the wilderness changes you. God, I hope so. There is evil in the world. I know that very well, but do you think it must be everywhere? Hello? I'm looking for the hostel. You should not be here. Hair of bread, mark of blood, child of until you. Get you gone. I met someone, little bird. Strong arms, full lips, a voice so soothing and sweet. What happens to them, to the women? I love the way he talks to me. Most go missing. Some go mad, but, you know, by the time he's finished talking to them, they want to go with him. You mean like a serial killer? You are cursed more than you know. Tear you up, feed you back to the mountain. No one stops the murders from happening, and they they want to kill me because I know. I will not let anything hurt you. And so you die upon this mountain tonight. Mothers keep us with an ill cup. We don't say his name. Mother Mary, oh let us in. They call him the gentleman. Mother Bridget, bring fire to us, kids. Jarfly men began cannon. Mother Easter raises from the soil again. The love talker. Mothers keep us where the devil come.
maybe coming out here will show me who I really am. The Love Talker is a folk horror fiction podcast launching October 25th. For more information, visit thelovetalker.com.